Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were, in, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O oh our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest part of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows, and I looked at their robes and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Let's pray that prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our God, we are the Redeemer. Amen. I've come to the conclusion <clears throat> over years of experience that the worst part of almost any project is the halfway point. Before you start a project, you have an idea, you have a vision. And it's just a dream, and you're excited about it because you see all the possibilities without having to spend any money or do any work yet. Uh, at the end of the project, you have a finished product, and of course that's very satisfying, but the midway point is where we often get disillusioned. Because it's too late to turn back at that point and undo what you started, you've come too far, uh, but the end is just as far away and you're starting to run out of steam. This is true of a lot of things, that road trips can be like this, right? Uh, I don't know how many of you, when you were young, went on a long road trip with your parents, and you say, how much longer? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? My Uncle John was very wise. He always just said, five more minutes, kids. Didn't matter if it was five hours. He just always said five minutes. Um, but I, I remember my dad occasionally would say, like, well, we're about halfway. And for about two seconds, you're kind of excited about that. And so you start doing the math. And you realize, oh, we have to do all of this again. And then we have a return trip, so actually we're only 25% in, you know? And you're already bored and hungry and you have to pee and your sister's driving you crazy and if you have to see one more cracker barrel, you think you're going to lose it, you know? <laughs> and uh, suddenly halfway doesn't seem so great. 
And this is why people stop at South of the Border on their way to Disney World. <laughs> um, so that vision you have of sitting in Florida sunshine starts to seem irrelevant. You want to give up. And home projects are similar, right? About halfway through, you start to wonder, like, why did I start this thing at all? And you start to think this project might outlive me. I, I actually actually went to provide a great example yesterday. I wasn't there, but she's told us 20 times that she fainted during the caroling event. And you know, later on in the evening, I said to Georgia, I said, about when did this happen? She said about halfway. I said, bingo, see? <laughs> Proves my point. The same goes for so many things. Doesn't matter if you're building a, you know, a house or an in, you know, a business or playing an instrument or going to school, writing a paper, writing a sermon. Uh, you eventually, somewhere in the middle, you get discouraged and you start to ask, "What am I doing? You know, why did I start this thing? Should I quit? Is it too late?" And you know, we've been talking a bit about vision and mission as we've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And discouragement crushes vision. It makes vision seem irrelevant. And actually, worse than that, it makes vision seem silly, frankly. Vision looks like pie in the sky nonsense when discouragement hits you. It looks like a mockery, like false hope. It's kind of like finding that, you know, it's like getting excited that you, uh, about something and finding out it's a practical joke, you know, like winning the Nigerian lottery or something like that, right? Discouragement is really, I think, a form of fear. Uh, fear of man, fear of failure, fear of looking stupid, fear of getting hurt, fear of death, fear of the work itself, fear of the cost. These things mount up. And if discouragement crushes vision, uh, and if discouragement is a form of fear, then fear and mission are not going to go real well together. If mission is vision becoming a reality, as we've said before, and fear makes vision blurry and unclear, fear becomes a huge, perhaps the number one, impediment to vision. I would argue it is. The biggest problem is not money, it's not resources, it's not timing, or talent, but fear and discouragement. And all those things could be legitimate obstacles and challenges. They can create real delays. What will ultimately kill your vision is fear and discouragement. And I think as the people of God, we need to be prepared for that reality. Uh, if, if you're going to pursue a vision, if God gives vision, as we've talked about, and you're going to pursue it, you need to be prepared to respond to the discouragement and the fear. I'm tempted to call this message the Battle of Midway for all you World War II enthusiasts. But, uh, Nehemiah is about to face a test like this here at the midway point in their project. And I noticed that the problem was not as much in getting started, right? Uh, that part kind of came easy. There was an early wave of enthusiasm uh, to carry it along early. And then Nehemiah announced this vision of a rebuilt wall that would protect the people of God. God had been faithful. The people got excited. Uh, and they abandoned everything they were doing. They lined up to build this wall. Even though they had no expertise, they committed to this vision, right? And so nearly every Jew in the province is working on it. Um, and we see in today's passage that they get about halfway. And that should be really encouraging. But then reality sets in, we still have halfway to go, and finishing is sometimes harder than starting. And besides that, getting halfway, it's not enough to actually provide complete protection. The wall's still too short. But it is high enough to get the attention of your enemies. 
most enemies are not going to wait until you're strong enough to actually resist them, so it's much easier for them to stop this thing now and nip it in the bud, and that's what they're starting to realize. So, in a way, the halfway point is the most dangerous part of this project. And, you know, I think this is kind of what Jesus was getting at. In Luke 14, he talks about counting the cost of discipleship, right, of following him. He says that not counting the cost, one of the illustrations he uses, not counting the cost is like a man who starts a building project without calculating whether he has enough money to finish. And he says, like, you know, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. People will mock such a man, and rightfully so. Why? Because he's a fool. And no one likes looking like a fool. No one wants to fail. No one wants to sign up for a losing cause. And because of that, I think this is where the enemy likes to attack at this point. His goal is to mock and discourage and create fear, and he will use human agents to do that at times. In essence, to derail the project, he's got to get you to lose sight of the vision and abandon the ship, and that's what Nehemiah is dealing with. Unlike Jesus' parable, he's not afraid of running out of money, he's afraid of running out of momentum, and that the people will lose heart. Uh, and discouragement is such a powerful weapon to the enemy, I may have used this illustration before, but you know, we're in Advent, and so we've been watching Christmas movies. We haven't gotten to it yet, but we will watch It's a Wonderful Life. And at the very beginning of It's a Wonderful Life, it opens and you can hear all these countless prayers being offered up for one George Bailey, right? And the prayers arrive in heaven, and this is where the theology gets a little wonky uh, because the prayers are being received by a couple of angels represented by like, galaxies or something, right? Um, and the angel manager is describing this case of George DeClarence, the guardian angel who's been assigned to him, and he tells him, there's a man in trouble on earth who needs our help. And Clarence says, what, is he sick? And the other angel says, no, worse, he's discouraged. When I was a kid, I laughed at that line, because I thought it sounded silly, but I could get it now. And I think as the people of God, it is important for us to consider how we handle discouragement. How we should respond to threats and the fears that bubble up in us. How we can recover kingdom vision when it seems to fade from reality. Yeah, Maya has an idea for this, but we're going to start at the beginning. What do we read here on verse 1? It says, When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Enemies jeer. That is what they do. They mock and laugh and make fun. And it's not motivated from an actual sense of humor or something. The motive is the anger. It's rage. There's hatred behind the laughter. And again, early on here, they don't initially feel like they need to do anything physical to threaten them. Uh, as far as they're concerned, they don't think the Jews are going to succeed at this anyway, so they, consent, they content themselves with, with mockery instead. Essentially making catcalls, making faces. It's actually juvenile, and that's part of what's creepy about it. The enemy loves to act like that. One of, one of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, and there's a character in that novel possessed by Satan, and, and one of the creepiest things he does, some of the creepiest things he does, are the most petulant and childish things that he does. The scariest chapter, I've probably used this before too, it ends with the devil character saying the main character's name again and again and again. When the main character responds and says, what? The, the 
actually I'm not thinking. And just waits a few seconds and then starts again. And does it all night. And, and that's kind of like what this scene feels like. You know, like listen to what Sanballat says in verse 2. He said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? What's his point here? His point is to discourage them by making them feel ridiculous. He calls them feeble, so he's mocking them for looking weak, or perhaps even not manly. He is taunting them, driving them to distraction, trying to draw them into an argument, possibly, or a fight. He asks a series of rhetorical questions, and the answers to which are all clearly no. Will they restore it for themselves? He's accusing them of, of pride or. <coughs> Also pointing out that they probably can't do this on their own. He's simultaneously mocking them for their pride. Will they sacrifice? And now he's mocking them for their worship and making fun of people for praying for miracles. Maybe making fun of them because they're too busy to spend their days sacrificing in the temple because they're doing this emergency work on the wall. Will they finish up in a day, he says? <laughs> that one got to me a little bit. It's a not-so-subtle mockery of the fact that they're clearly in a hurry. When you're doing something in a hurry, we often look silly in the process. I noticed for myself anyway. And when people catch you, you feel a little bit silly in the process, and you feel like you have to explain why I'm rushing and why I'm in a hurry, right? So they're clearly in a hurry, and I, I pictured like old men hurriedly trying to pile these stones, and some guy coming along and saying, like, oh, easy old man. Where are you running off to? Don't wear yourself out, you know? Rome wasn't built in a day. But again, the whole thing is designed to make you feel ridiculous. More ridiculous than you already felt as, say, a curfumer building a wall. He also mocks the materials they're using, because it's all they can get their hands on and afford. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? The answer is clearly no. You're building a garbage wall out of a garbage material. You can't even afford decent bricks. And the char marks on the stones are going to be a constant reminder that the previous wall didn't last. I don't know what makes you think this one will. Tobiah, standing next to him, says this in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and says, Yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, they'll break down their stone wall. We have a lot of foxes in our neighborhood these days. Incidentally, we also have a, a lot fewer rabbits than we had a year ago. Um, but a fox, I mean, what is a fox? A fox is like a miniature dog, right? Not as frou-frou and effeminate as little pet dogs that some people keep, but, you know, it's a little dog. One thing I've noticed about the foxes when you see them trotting about the neighborhood is, that, is how lightly they step. They're completely silent when they're skulking around the neighborhood. And like, you know, my dogs, when they come downstairs, everyone knows it in the neighborhood. They have no subtlety. They are clumsy and stupid and loud. They would be terrible hunters. But foxes have a reputation 
for a reason. They are sly, they are sneaky, and they're light on their feet. And they don't weigh much. So when Tobias says, one fox trot on the top of this thing, the whole thing will come down. Oh, they're yucking it up there. Every comment is designed to make the Jews, God's people, feel ridiculous. Who likes feeling ridiculous? It is designed to discourage. Now, Nehemiah does not engage them and respond to every mocking word. He doesn't engage in a small, you know, smack talk battle. Uh, he responds instead with prayer in verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah appeals to God to handle the mockers. He asks God to hear. He says, hear, O our God. But he doesn't specify, hear us. What, is God, what does he want God to hear? I think he wants God to listen in on the mockery. God, do you hear what they're saying? Are you going to let that stand? And then the Elias starts unloading some imprecatory prayers. Let their taunts return to them. Let them be plundered. Let them be captives. Let them be exiles. In other words, let them experience what we've experienced. Do not cover their guilt, he says. How many of you pray like this with your kids? I feel like the question on everybody's mind whenever you read imprecatory prayers in the, in the scriptures is like, is that cool to do that? Like, is it appropriate for God's people to go that far, you know? We, we rarely do this kind of thing as Christians. I mean, look, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and, and to seek good for them. And yet in the Old Testament we do occasionally see these types of prayers and maybe it'll help to think of it as praying that God would be just. That his holiness and power would be vindicated and that he would not ignore cruelty when he sees it. Because this is cruelty. And why does Nehemiah go this far? What provokes him so? It's because he says, they have provoked you to anger God. You have to be mad about this. And look what he adds at the very end. He says, they provoke you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah's heart is with the people of God, the workers. He doesn't want to see them discouraged. These words are poison to this project and to the soul. And they have the ability to crush people and to crush their vision. If you know what it's like to be discouraged, then maybe you can understand why Nehemiah is this upset. Nehemiah finds this unforgivable. To crush the spirit of God's people, that's the word of Satan. He's praying against the kingdom of darkness. So he does not answer 
the enemies directly. He says nothing to the people about this. He just turns immediately and prays to God. And God's people persevere. And the work continues for a while, it says in verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So just like that, the job is nearly half done. Why? Because they have a mind to work. They are motivated. Maybe it's just a little bit of a sidebar, but I just want you to see that God's people work not out of compulsion, but because they want to. They have it in mind to. No kingdom vision, no gospel mission is going to bear fruit unless this is true. You need to have a mind to work. That is what strengthening your hands actually looks like. But their success means that the enemy is forced over his mistakes, and that's what happens in the next paragraph, in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Again, these have multiplied. This is the first time we hear of the Ashdodites mentioned. Mere words and mockery didn't stop these things, so now they're going to turn to physical threats, and the goal this time is not just to discourage, but to confuse, it says. To cause confusion. So the goal is not to kill everybody even necessarily, just to create enough panic and confusion. If mockery doesn't stop them, maybe confusion will. Because no one does their best work when they're confused. Confusion is an enemy to progress. It's closely related to the discouragement. Now, our God is not a God of confusion, but he has used it on occasion. Uh, when they were building the Tower of Babel, God stopped the project. How? By confusing their languages. That's the point. Confusion is not helpful when you're trying to do a building project. But just as God confuses his enemies, the enemy seeks to confuse us. So there is a conspiracy afoot to come and physically harass the Jews in Jerusalem with the purpose of creating confusion. Well, Nehemiah hears about this and he tries to do what he can and respond in a responsible way. He says, then we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Okay, that's good and sensible. Pray and set a guard. That's spiritual and also practical. Very good. Is that everything you reasonably can, you would think? After all, God didn't let them falter when we were mocked. Uh, we stood strong. We're going to stand strong now. Everything's okay. But this is where God's people start to lose heart. This is what starts happening in verse 10. Nehemiah's initial plan is not to spell all the fears. Verse 10 says, in Judah it is said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much trouble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. In Judah, it was said, everyone in Judah is talking about this. The rumor mills are churning. And the talk around the water cooler is that they're in serious trouble. They're looking at this project where they've made so much progress, and suddenly it all looks kind of pathetic and foolish and silly. And they start second guessing the whole thing. And I want you to see this, that the mockery from earlier, that they had ignored, comes back with a vengeance. 
seldom fully forget when somebody mocks us. It sits there, and in difficult moments, it comes back to haunt you. And you look back and say, wow, I really am that stupid and pathetic and foolish. Look at how their words echo the earlier mockery from their enemies. Our strength is failing, they say. In other words, he was right. We are feeble. There's too much rubble, just like Sam Ballard said. These are crap materials. There's not enough of us, they say. Like, like they said, we can't do it alone. That's what they said. Look at this mess. It's never going to amount to anything. This is exactly the kind of confusion the enemy wanted to create, because you cannot see the vision if you're too busy looking at yourself and your own failings. If you keep looking in the mirror, you'll see failure and weakness, and the mockery of the enemy will keep resonating here. That's why the words of the enemies are so hateful. Mockery is effective precisely because it plays on your pre-existing fears. That's why you don't forget it. It works because we already have doubts. Mockery takes that whisper of a doubt that you've been trying to ignore and amplifies it until it's a booming, dominant voice in your head and it's all you can think about. And once we give voice to our own doubts, it feeds the nastiness of the enemy. And you begin crumbling, and your assurance and your confidence is shattered, and the vision completely fades from you. And the enemy does not show mercy to the doubt, and he feeds on doubt and fear, and it becomes a vicious downward spiral of discouragement. And so the enemy is now emboldened in verse 11. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Oh, they're feeling it now. And worse than that, God's people believe the lies and then the discouragement starts to spread in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, the enemies, came from all directions and said to us, ten times you must return to us. I felt like on first reading, verse 12 was kind of tricky to understand because it was syntax or something, but the gist, I think, is that the remaining Jews who are not actually laboring or living in Jerusalem and who live out in the countryside near enough to these enemies to hear the threats and perhaps see the preparations for an armed conflict, they're freaking out. And they start coming from all directions, showing up at the city and basically warning their friends and family, come home. Don't stay here. You might get hurt. Same reason nobody wants their kids going to like a political uh, protest or riot. Our dear friend Carol in Spain, they had political unrest over there because of the socialist government getting reelected, and people were not happy about that. I wouldn't be either. But I told her, I don't want to hear that you're down there in the center city or anything like that. I don't want her to get hurt, even if she's right. But discouragement is just as contagious as the revival was. Nehemiah says they implored them ten times. I don't know if it was a literal ten. Just the figure stand in, they just kept saying it. Get out of Dodge. Come home. 
You must return to us. Come home and stay out of trouble. And it's like the cry of every mother. Girlfriends, too. What's the old song from the 60s? Billy, don't be a hero. Don't mess around with your life. Billy, don't be a hero. Come home and make me your wife. As he started to go, I said, Billy, keep your head low. God's people, in spite of all the many great things that have been happening, are not immune to discouragement. It affects all of us and it creeps up. They're not sick. Worse, they're discouraged. The vision is gone and all we can see is the trouble. Discouragement and confusion and fear are taking over and without intervention, this revival will die. And God's people will be scattered, and Nehemiah will become a footnote in the history books at that. But Nehemiah does not abandon his post, and he may be the only person here who can still see the vision. What does he say? Look at verses 13 and 14. So, so in the lowest part of the space, behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What does Nehemiah do? He sets a guard at the most vulnerable points. He keeps the families together to remind them of what we're fighting for. And he gives what amounts to Henry V's Christian's Day speech. Here is Nehemiah's prescription for overcoming discouragement, confusion, and fear. It's a short speech with three main points, like a good Presbyterian sermon. And in a nutshell, he says, Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. And fight. Don't be afraid may sound like a trite cure for fear. <laughs> Just stop it. But that's the refrain throughout Scripture, is it not? From kings and angels, from God himself. It's a line so common in Scripture, time does not allow for me to get a list. But we are not called to fear. Jesus says we shouldn't even worry. We may be called to caution, we may be called to vigilance, but we are not called to fear. Perfect love, the love of God our Father, drives out fear, but Nehemiah also gives a reason why you don't have to be afraid when he says the next thing, remember the Lord. If you have lost sight of the vision and mission, don't try to regain that, don't try to get a hold of that whole thing. Just start by looking at the Lord. Remember Him. How quickly we forget that we are not the only actors in this drama. When we get discouraged and confused and fearful and can't see the vision, nor do we really remember that God's there, it's hard to see him because your head is cast down. You don't see God when you're looking down at your navel. So Nehemiah reminds them of the Lord and his greatness. Not to focus on what we've already done. Look, we've come so far. He doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about what he's accomplished or anything. You know, I'm with you guys. Don't worry about it. He doesn't point to what the king promised them. You know, the king will have our back. It'll be okay. None of that. 
If you're putting your faith in anything else, you're already confused. You will get discouraged. You will be full of fear. So don't look to your own strength. Look to the Lord. He is great. Our God is an awesome God. And finally, Nehemiah tells them to fight. Why fight? Well, because God is on our side, and he's great and awesome, but also because you have something worth fighting for. He talks about brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and wives and homes. Those aren't just worldly possessions. God gave them to you and they're worth fighting for. Now, I'll qualify. Nehemiah is not advocating an aggressive war. This is a defensive posture. Be ready to fight. Readiness eliminates confusion and leaves no time for fear. Now, why is this applicable to us, to you and me, this morning? Well, it's applicable for the simple reason that I think we've all experienced discouragement. Maybe you're dealing with that more acutely this morning. We've all been driven by the enemy into confusion and fear from time to time. And we have also heard his mocking voice ringing in our ears. And we have believed his lies, and sometimes we've begun to repeat them. That our strength is failing. What I've done is no better than rubble, and we are all alone. As the Jews in Jerusalem said, by ourselves, we cannot do this. How many of you can testify that I haven't felt that? How many of you have allowed the enemy's mocking voice to dominate your thoughts? And when that happens, you can't even talk about vision. So all you see is our weakness and frailty and sin, and we feel ridiculous. We're not thinking about the gospel and how we can reach the lost for Christ. We feel feeble and lost and abandoned. But the hope of the gospel is that we are not defined by the enemy's points. Jesus came to die for you and to do exactly, fulfill exactly what Nehemiah prayed. He came to turn the taunts of the enemy back on his head. You are not ridiculous in the eyes of Christ. Your strength isn't what matters. What matters is that your God is great and awesome when you are weak and feeble. The gospel is ultimately that Jesus fought for you. So in this second week of Advent, I urge you to remember the Lord. Remember Jesus. The Jews got one thing right there in verse 10. When they said, by ourselves, we will not be able, I think they said it without expected reinforcements. They're saying it in despair. But it's true. By ourselves, we will not be able. But God didn't leave us by ourselves, did he? They were right. We are able. The enemy had us by the throat. But Jesus did not despise us. He came to live among us as one of us. And he came to fight for us when we were weak and crippled by sin. He came so that the mockery wouldn't stand. 
and so that we wouldn't be ridiculous anymore. He came to turn the enemy's mockery back on his own head. And one day he'll be back and set everything right. So as the song says, God rescue you, Christian John, and let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power when we have gone astray. No tidings of company of joy. So don't lose sight of the vision. This is not a time to be discouraged or confused. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus came to fight for you even when you weren't worth fighting for. That's the hope of Advent. That's the promise of Christmas. It's good news for weak and feeble people like you and me. So let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are thankful for this morning, Lord. Thankful for your word. Thankful for this Advent season, Lord, when we not only uh, look back when Jesus first came, but knowing that he's going to come again. And there is a time coming when he will make all things right, and we're discouraged that will be a strange thing to our ears, where fear will be gone, where no confusion will be left standing. Thank you for sending your son to fight for us when we were not worth fighting for. To make his blessings flow as far as the curse is bound. And thank you that Nehemiah's prayers are even now being answered since Christ has come. Lord, may the taunts return to the enemy's head. Thank you for all that you've done for us. We wish that you would us this week. Encourage us, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.